Hey everybody, Jeff here. Just want to have a real quick conversation with you up front before you hear this interview. This is an interview I actually did a while ago and for various reasons, uh, some of which I'm going to tell you about right now. It's not getting released until now. I have a small backlog of audio that I'm getting through for editing right now. And one of the reasons why this one was delayed is you're going to hear us talk about Forged in Steel. I'm actually talking to Wade, who is the designer. And the Kickstarter did launch and uh, I knew about it and I had, was going to be working on the interview at that time to release it. And then Don and I had some conversations and the Forged in Steel game launched in a package deal with another game, Mill City. Don had decided he was going to pull that and uh, retool and revamp. So I kind of uh, held back on this and the uh, review for Forged in Steel as well. And now he, he he's all done with his retooling and all that good stuff. And Forged in Steel is out there on Kickstarter right now, actually, as its own game. So it's a project all by itself. It is going until February 3rd, 2015. So definitely go check that out. He's looking for $15,000 as of this recording. Has a little over $5,000. And definitely go check that out. So you're going to hear Wade and I talk about the game. And towards the end a little bit, you hear uh, him mention the Kickstarter or us mention the Kickstarter, the original Kickstarter. So just so you know, again, up front, it is on Kickstarter right now. It's forged in steel and it is going until February 3rd, 2015. So go check that one out. Uh, you'll also hear me talk about how we were going to do a video. We are still going to be doing that video. Actually, uh, before I think our video gets done, because we're not recording ours until next weekend, so you're hearing this. Let's see, I'm actually releasing this on January 11th, so the weekend after January 11th, uh, we should be recording and editing our video to put out. And I think before that, uh, one of our United Geeks Network members, Broken Prism Reviews, is also looking at this game. And I know he's prepping his video as well. Actually, I just heard from him uh, today, I believe. I saw that he was working on the video. So you should see videos from us very soon. And even before that, I believe uh, Lance, my buddy Lance from Undead Viking, has done a video review uh, my buddy Cyrus from Father Geek has a written review done. I mean, there's uh, plenty of awesome stuff out there, so definitely go check it out. Okay, listen to Wade and I have a conversation about this game. Talk to you soon. Welcome to the Game of Crowdfunding Interview Edition, recorded Wednesday, August 20th, 2014. Who's joining me on Skype tonight? My uh, name is Wade Broadhead, and I'm working on the game Forged in Steel, which is going to be kickstarted in a couple of weeks. And I'm a, a planning director for a small town in southern Colorado. Well, let's see, you jumped ahead to one of my warm-up questions. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Sorry. 
feigning right off the bat. <laughs> so yes, Wade is joining us. The Forged and Seal Kickstarter that'll be coming up here soon from Nightworks Games. Uh, and I've talked to Don in the past on the show, uh, but this will be the first time I've gotten to have a conversation with Wade. So are you ready for a few warm-up questions, sir? I absolutely am ready. <laughs> well, you already, you already answered one. That's what you do for a living. Uh, so the next one will be, uh, what makes you a geek, sir? What makes me a geek? Oh, the amount of board games, obviously, that I played. You know, I don't think I am a, a traditional geek, so I don't know if I qualify on the geek scale <laughs> to be an interview here. So I think I was Don, I was talking to Don saying that I might be like a geek, geek. Fextite because, you know, I, I play a lot of geek stuff, but I'm in this planning world of button down shirts most of the time. But as soon as I get out of work, I'm playing board games, um, you know, watching BSG, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You know, I'm not just got into Doctor Who. You know, I don't read comic books. So some of the typical geek stuff I don't do. But some of the stuff that I used to do is I used to play uh, historical miniatures is how I actually got into board gaming indirectly when I was in Denver. So that that's probably pretty geeky on the scale of playing with little metal figurines. I actually worried about the wife that I met when I first met her. I was worried more about anything than telling her that I played with little, you know, historical figurines. But once we made it past that hump, I had this big moment of silence. I said, I have to tell you something. And, and she paused. It was like, it's really important. And she paused expecting it was like the worst thing in the world. And it's like, I play DBM 15 millimeter historical miniatures. <laughs> And she's like, that's okay, because I have a poster of Jordy LaForge in my room back at my house where I grew up. So <laughs> she actually had Star Trek Next Generation action figures left over when she was in love with all of them. So we knew it. immediately we had secret uh, geek tendencies. <laughs> so geek and love couple. Sounds like geek-related uh, activities to me. I, I don't think there's necessarily just one set, one form that you have to be a part of to be con considered geek. Well, and I think that's informs a lot of my game design and the in the games that I like and where I like to spend time is my wife is we're in a uh, in Pueblo, Colorado, which is a town of hundred thousand people. Doesn't have a lot of tech industry, so it doesn't have as many uh, board gamers as like a Denver, or Minneapolis, or or Austin or anything. And so there's kind of a different market of kind of medium weight gamers. And so my wife has actually convinced a lot of her friends to come over, which you never thought they would be the type that would play board games. And uh, they're a great audience to bounce playtest designs as well as just all types of games and people who don't know about what's a meaty game what's a deep game they don't really care they just want to play a good game and so every saturday night we gather with mostly women and i don't i probably shouldn't say that in public i don't want to let everybody know that <laughs> i get to spend every saturday night with an amazingly beautiful woman and all of her beautiful friends playing uh himalaya and kalis and for sale and time's up <laughs> you know it's kind of Tempered, some of my game design started really deep and, you know, really going for something like Mahav or Here I Stand. And I've really kind of come around to, you know, games that gamers would like, but gamers that people who are gamers who don't know it yet could easily grasp. And then one of the uh, last warm up questions I usually like to do is uh, at All Us Geeks, we do like to point out that you can geek out about just about anything if you have the passion level for it. So do you have any 
geek level passions for something that the typical person probably wouldn't associate with geekdom. Oh, are you prepared for this one? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I asked it, so (laughs) I'm pretty sure this is probably a first. So, um, I'm actually like a historic preservationist, historic preservation city planner, and I'm really interested in mid-century modern architecture and social history and like much of America was built in the 50s and 60s and it's not really appreciated, but represents a really interesting time of our history. And strangely enough, through doing a project as a city planner that was really successful, my wife got into it and she got into the the fashion side. And so my wife now writes a, a blog about mid-century fashion and somebody asked us to give like a presentation just for fun together and we did it. And it was successful. So tomorrow we're flying to Iowa, to the Iowa State Conference to give a talk about mid-century modern. And I talk about architecture and she talks about fashion and how you can tell how old pictures are. You can tell how how we change as human beings through fashion. And I talk about architecture and social history. So that's got to be pretty geeky in a different way. (laughs) (laughs) I will accept that answer. (laughs) That sounds pretty cool. It's always great when you can kind of not only find a passion, but find other people that are willing to have you talk about that passion. And even like through just this, through like the podcasting and stuff, the the various people I get to talk to, the various people that kind of seek me out for advice or consulting and all that good stuff is amazing. It's that, uh, you know, I've got a passion and I get to share it almost daily. Yeah, I think I've, I'm really blessed. I get to, to work on a passion in my game and be able to partake in it every Saturday night. And then I get to go and, and work on it and then actually people pay me to fly around and talk about something that I'm, I'm really passionate about that I actually didn't have a lot of background in when I first started. I just kind of fell in love with it, as did my wife. And, you know, sometimes those people kind of discover something later or even more energetic than kind of a scholar that's been studying it their whole life. Then just to be able to go do something with your spouse, you know, I'm lucky that I got her hooked into games. Well, actually, funny story. I, I realized we were cut, when we started our, our game club, we realized like that first year, I was trying to get deeper stuff to the table and I was getting kind of frustrated with the game night. And finally, we kind of had it out. And she's like, this is my game night. This is, I, we have, you know, we have four kids. The only time <laughs> I have to socialize with adults. And I was like, oh, okay. So I finally realized it's my wife's game night that I just happened to bring the games to. So <laughs> it's like, once I figured that out, uh, it all went, went well from there. And we've been having a really great game night for, I don't know, since 2008. Well, I think it's also has something to do with the fact that as we get older, I mean, we can uh, appreciate various things, not only appreciate various things more, but the fact that one, we've probably got better access to this disposable income and maybe a little bit smarter about where we use our disposable income and, and, uh, what passions that we pursue and we know we can fit in or help us deal with our day to day or however you want to look at that aspect of it. But I think there's something to the, maturity level and being able to embrace your passions in a very different way than say like, you know, in your teens and and even early twenties where so many various things were pulling at you and you let all of them pull at you. Yeah. I think we live in a great time now that you can kind of, you know, geek is not a bad word and you just embrace whatever you love, whether it's, you know, Doctor Who or football or mid-century modern, you know, there doesn't seem to be as many stigmas on things as there used to. And I just think people are probably proportionately 
happier. And it's funny because I've been, you know, as I play games and we have these game nights that, you know, really kind of bring, you know, our community together. You know, I, I've been reading a lot about city planning things and, you know, always trying to find different strategies to kind of make our city better in the city that I work in now. And read this really interesting book about this guy who went around. He's kind of a city planning geek and he was a journalist and wrote about all these different cities and, you know, what, you know, what society really comes down to, what life really comes down to. And he kind of mentioned this like coffee house idea. Like the most enjoyable time he has is when all of his friends come over. They all basically like they all come over, they play music, they drink coffee or wine. And it was just kind of like a game night without the games. And this like, you know, city planner scholar travel everywhere, basically, you know, arrived at the same conclusion that I have that, you know, that being able to sit down with friends and share an experience is probably one of the foremost things we do as human beings. And the best thing we do is kind of a civic life. Sorry, is that, is that too deep for <laughs> a couple minutes in? <laughs> no, not, not at all. You know, I always like to kind of get a feel for this question and, and see what, what other people think. At some point, you made a decision to go from just, you know, casual game player enjoying games to I want to design and create my own games. Do you have a moment that you can kind of point to where that, that switch happened for you? Yeah, thinking about spending this time with you tonight, I almost kind of forgotten. I've been so sucked into the game that I'm working on now that when I was a kid, I think probably like eight or nine or 10, I would design like rudimentary games and I had no, I just kind of came up with them and I would, I would take baseball cards and football cards and I would go buy them as soon as the season started, as many as I could. And I would get the teams together and the teams would play against each other and I'd roll two dice and like a one, one would be an interception or whatever. And they would have a whole season and I'd play it on the carpet in the floor. And then uh, maybe a couple of years later, I would draw maps of the entire world or the Mediterranean on eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. And I would add every single historical empire that I could read about and they would all battle in this game that kind of had access and allies. And so I'd kind of forgotten that I'd done that. I'd just spend hours and hours and hours in my room like designing actually just paper and I would just use a pencil and just erase the units as they moved to different spaces. And I would just spend tons of time. So I think that's, I started really, really early and I'd almost kind of forgotten uh, my early game design. I would, you know, I wasn't really working on crafty mechanics or anything. It wasn't like pandemic junior, but I was, you know, trying to come up with different ways of expressing myself. But when did you have that moment for yourself where you're like, I want to be a game designer? I mean, when, when you knew you wanted to see like your name on a box? Uh, I think it was around, I'd, I'd moved from Denver here to Pueblo and there wasn't as many gamers and I was kind of struggling with meeting people and, and switching different types of, like I said, the historical miniatures, there was nobody to do that. And it was a lot cheaper to move to board games. And, uh, you know, I started basically, I kind of had an idea of a game that just didn't exist yet. And so I wanted to be able to make that game and it just kind of hit me all of a sudden. I just started mapping it out just pieces of other games and you know, Hey, that should be out there, but it's not, and I've never seen it. So why don't I try to create it? And so it's probably like around 2007 that I decided I could do this. You know, I can make some different ideas and I could put some games out there that, that I don't see out in the market that I would enjoy playing. And really I try to pick up games that aren't out there and that I would enjoy and that my friends would enjoy. And if other people enjoy them, that's all gravy. So do you have, well, I mean, it sounds like you do, but I'll, I'll continue. <laughs> the question. So do you have, a lot of different games in various 
levels of design right now. It's fairly shameful, I think. It's, <laughs> it's really emba- it's embarrassing. The, my wife really wants me to clean out kind of the, the basement room and it's just got, I don't know, maybe, you know, 15 different designs and different states of production. And so I used to kind of be really obsessed with bits. And so I get this idea and I'd really want to make sure that the, the prototype looked nice to somebody and, you know, kind of a rookie mistake. And you spend all this time and you play the game and you get your friend and they're like, wow, Wade, that's really pretty, but it's just garbage, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So you've got this pretty looking spice trading, travel around the world sailing game with all these personalized ships that is just an awful game. And so I have a bunch of really pretty prototypes. So I learned a lot um, with the first couple and I was still sort of in the larger epic games, which another another fail is that, you know, try to design something if you're in the beginning, unless it's your passion, that's a little bit shorter and sweeter. That's easy to play test and easy to build up from instead of build down from. So I kind of went with the, the epic monster game that fun to play test a couple, couple times. But it's almost impossible to turn into a kind of real marketable game. So yeah, I have a shameful basement room full of cardboard pieces and wood and rating thrift stores here. I think most of us do. <laughs> Yeah. You always have that, uh, you know, the box of bits that you can go to and pull out some stuff. Everybody's got a shame space someplace in their, (laughs) in their house, you know, but I actually do come back to them as I, I try not to get upset when they don't work. And I, I know enough about my process and about getting frustrated with myself. So I try to outthink myself. I was like, you know what, just leave it. You know, you may get inspired by this and come back to it. And I don't, do it a ton, but I have come back to designs and like, you know, let's take another crack at that after playing, playing a bunch of other games and kind of working on other games. And I know some designers don't play as much, but I really try to play a lot. I just learned a ton from, from just exposing myself to different games. And I've got a couple of different groups that I go to and it's always just trying to just experience new, uh, new mechanics and then inspire me to incorporate those in existing things. You know, you, you mentioned it and it's actually something that I really like to get into. And, and, uh, I'm always curious about for other designers. Do you have a set process for yourself at this point that helps you get to a point where you think a game's ready to take out into the public or does it vary by game? So I've been working with kind of best friends with Don Lloyd of Nightworks, who's got Dark Horse. And so we kind of have a nice process now and we both, you know, have moments of weakness, you know, so it's like an AA thing. And so we both try to inspire the other one to keep on going and using new technology to kind of record ideas. I've got a new job as a new commute. So I want to start taking ideas, but I think I do kind of get that rush of, rush of energy. And I really try to get it to something that I can play quickly before that kind of self doubt sets in or laziness or life and try to get it to the table and play it quickly with people like Don who can see like, okay, that's, that's all garbage, but this is really good. And we should, you know, we should work on this or, you know, put that back in the shame space and never bring it back out again. So I try to, when you got the inspiration, I I try to get it done um, quickly as I can, even though I know there's mistakes and it's not attractive, but just the act of creating something and getting to the table, I think is really rewarding for myself. And I know I really love, and I really, really love playing somebody's idea for the first time, even if it's, it's not any good. It's just, it's like getting, I just always think of like art, like Mona Lisa and 
it's like art that you can use. <laughs> you know, it was not like a maybe a game company with a you know, art that you can use that you can play. And so it's like getting to see somebody's you know some masterpiece painting kind of in the the draft phase. And it's just always kind of a, exciting to do that. So. I guess going back to your question, yeah, I try to, the process is really trying to get it, get it done before kind of life hits you or you switch gears or you kind of get bumped out of, out of the passion that got you the game idea. And I actually get them from a lot of different areas, but reading books, I tend to, I could pretty much always design some kind of game off of a book that I'm reading, especially if it's about history or, or military history or something like that. It sounds to me like, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're a theme first kind of designer. Yeah, I think I get inspired by, yeah, some kind of theme and then kind of work mechanics into it. And I do the reverse sometimes, but, you know, I really like the game to kind of feel like some historical period in time. And, and then, then the mechanics kind of emulates something that's going on in that period of time or that area of the world or something like that. Yeah, I think I'm almost always, if the theme is not grabbing me, then I get worried that it's not going to grab somebody else. Is this going to be your first published game or do you have other games that have already been published nope besides the uh the basement room this would be the <laughs> the first <laughs> the first published game and uh i was telling don earlier that this is probably like the longest pregnancy ever in the history of the world because i've been working on this game it was one of my very first games that i worked on and some of them fell by the wayside and this one was kind of like labor of love and so I've been working on this game probably since like late 2007, 2008 and kind of got it close where I thought it was ready to publish and had some, um, got a hit with some criticism that I couldn't take. And then kind of a couple of months later, redoubled my efforts and started on it again. It's almost like a family member. <laughs> you almost had to build an addition on the house to have this, to be able to publish this game. <laughs> was there ever any, uh, time frame where you were potentially thinking of self-publishing, uh, before going with, Don and Nightworks? You know, I just, I just did the other things going on in my life. I just nearly had the time to, to research that to the level that you needed to be a kind of competent self-publisher. And so I'd kind of, I looked into it, but I never really kind of, this game, it was kind of bit intensive. I mean, so I've, I've learned from this mistake, but this is the last, and I guess it's not necessarily a mistake, but if you're designing games, you usually want to go something crazy bit heavy in the beginning. And so this one is a city planning game that's going to have, you know, lots of houses and stuff like that. So I never, when I started pricing it out, it was a little bit too much to self-publish. Although I did make what sounds like when you start talking to game designers, like the universal mistake of, I kind of thought this game was ready, like in, must have been 2009. And thinking back, it was hilarious because it was so far away from being ready. And I actually packaged <laughs> up 10 copies of this game and paid, you know, 15 bucks and sent them to people I met in Board Game Geek. And they got a, you know, 10 people, one of them gave me feedback and probably blew like $70 on sending this game that was nowhere near ready just to get kind of affirmation that somebody else enjoyed it besides yourself. Do you have a playtest process that you use when you think a game is ready for the next level of feedback? Yeah, I think I've got a good, I've got the great Saturday night group, but then I've got some, uh, which I think scientifically proven, like we have the best game group in the United States. It's just amazing. We've gone to Board Game Geek. There's a lot of great people at Board Game Geek Con, but we have a really good group of people and there's some, um, you know, computer software engineers who are, you know, debuggers by profession. So they, they don't come out games themselves, but they are just amazing at being able to pick apart a game or, and so we basically get the game ready and we kind of unveil it on the group and they're really just great guys. Like, you know, our, our beer and pizza budget is going to be burst pretty soon because, <laughs> you know, they, they really do a good job 
they're very open to just kind of any new idea that hits them. And I think they really enjoy seeing a playtest, even if it's in the, the pizza box, you know, note card stage. So that's the, the process is just, just get it up to a, the group. It's actually color springs and playing with them. You said you've been kind of working on this game off and on since 2007. Correct. Okay. So forged and steel has been kind of been working on off and on since then. At what point? Do you and Don get together and decide that this is going to come out as a Nightworks game? Man, it's, I've been so close working with them. I almost kind of forgot. It seems like that's been about maybe a year, year and a half ago is when, uh, yeah, probably a year, you know, one to two, one and a half to two years ago is about when we kind of decided that Don was kind of finishing up some Dark Horse stuff. He was looking for other games and we were kind of become friends and. Um, I tried to help him out at the tail end. I got to know him at the very tail end of his uh, Kickstarter for Dark Horse. I wish I could have known him earlier to help him <laughs> out a little bit more because it's a pretty intensive process. And so we kind of started talking. And then I had been, you know, obviously playing this game since 2007. And like I said before, I was trying to make a game that at least my friends would like. And I got to play. And if it didn't get published, so what? My friends liked it. And I think they're pretty good judges of games. So they'd kind of, you know, vouch for it to Don. And the interesting thing is Don had never played a game like this. And so he never played a, a CDG game. And so it was kind of interesting to kind of, you know, unveil it to a publisher who had never even played kind of the genre before and watch his initial reaction just from a kind of a marketing, just a, a regular kind of game devoid of any kind of, you know, fanboys for the genre. So that was about two years, two years ago, I think is when we did that. And then you guys have been working together off and on to bring it to Kickstarter for the, the basically like the past two years? No, that's been really, I've been kind of moving it along slowly in the back while he was finishing up his expansion to Dark Horse. And so we've been kind of moving it slowly. And as soon as that finished, it's really been an intensive process just since, you know, beginning of the year. I mean, we're doing some stuff, but it really got intense when the files finished for the last one when he went to print. And, you know, I think this thing I learned about game design, I used to kind of write some poetry. I learned the same thing. If you want to be a good poet or a good game designer, it really takes work. You know, you can't, you always think like, oh, I'll be a poet and a game designer, you know, when I'm smoking a cigarette in the 15 minutes before, you know, and I'll just kind of, you know, be artistic and I'll do this. But you, the successful people, I think, really work hard on it. They set schedules. They treat it, you know, almost more intense than a job because it takes a lot of work to, to get the game ready and then get it play tested and then to actually get it marketed. And if somebody gets it, you know, work on the inside of a, um, kind of helping Don inside of his company is just a ton, a ton of work. So I mean, he's put more hours than than his other job getting this all together. Yeah, Don's a busy man. Him and I talk off and on quite a bit, and he is he's definitely putting in the work and the the time to not only in in the dark horse stuff, but prepping here for Forged and Steel to come out on Kickstarter as well. Yeah, I'm lucky that you know one of my best friends is I think one of the best people at you know, just kind of knowing the Kickstarter market and just doing kind of copious amounts of research on kind of what makes it, what doesn't, you know, different times a year to put the game out and um, just he's like a st- scientific statistician on <laughs> Kickstarter. So I've learned a lot more than I ever thought. And I have other friends who have tried to kickstart coffee, solar, solar projects and coffee projects, and they've all failed. I kind of wish that, you know, they had had Don's wisdom to figure out some of the kind of main mechanics of getting a Kickstarter funded or at least having a good chance. Yeah. It kind of when we, when Don and I got to sit down for an interview a while back, I had pointed out at that time that he's kind of, been around almost from the beginning of Kickstarter because his original Dark Horse project was very early on in the Kickstarter process when Mm -hmm. things were drastically different than they are today. So, uh, and, and between that and the amount of time that passed 
for when he put Rebels and Rogues out for the expansion, a lot of things had changed and he had had to kind of readjust how he had done some of his stuff from previous. And, you know, it, it is, it's a lot of research. And, you know, I always talk about Kickstarter years. I always joke around with people that, you know, years, uh, Kickstarter years are like dog years. Um, <laughs> I mean, things just change so drastically on the Kickstarter side of things that one year ago, uh, Kickstarter looked drastically different than it does today. Yeah. And, <laughs> And you kind of don't want to be suckered into, you know, there's plenty of people doing, you know, zombie fighting ninja clowns games. And so you still want to be able to, I'd still like to be able to work with Don to put out quality, you know, strategic board games, you know, whether they're short ones or long ones and kind of, a lot of people just kind of pander to certain trends. And I think Don's still trying to do some really, really great games that don't fit the traditional trend. All right, so this might be a good time for us to go ahead and have you tell us a little bit more about Forged in Steel. So you want to give us your elevator pitch for Forged in Steel? <laughs> Captain of Segways, huh? <laughs> uh, Forged in Steel is a multiplayer CDG, which is a card-driven game about city planning. And so if people don't know anything about these games, there's a genre called CDGs, and they're games that are kind of run by cards. And so you have cards that you play, and the beauty of it is that you play the card for an event, or you play a card for basically operation points, basically actions, whatever you want to call them. And so they're a ton of incredibly beautiful, tense, amazing two-player games in this genre. And then there's a couple of um, multiplayer games that will take you all afternoon. And so going back to the earlier in their view, I realized like, well, there isn't one where I, I want to play Twilight Struggle, which is for the most famous. Yeah, I want to play Twilight Struggle with three of my friends, not just one of my friends. And so that was kind of some of the inspiration was, you know, I want to play a CDG because I just love the way it creates delicious decisions. And so every move of every turn is just delicious and there's tension and just makes for the best kind of gameplay. And so Forge and Steel is my attempt to create a multiplayer card-driven game that is not a war game and is not sent in, you know, 1654 England or Germany. It's kind of broad appeal. It's set in uh, Pueblo, Colorado in the progressive era. So it's like 1890 to 1920. And you lead, um, you take the the role of a family and you um, experience three decades of history um, through cards, you know, running this family. And so you're competing against each other. And there's also like our favorite term, mutualism. And so there's competition and some mutualism and that you're kind of sharing, sharing goals and, and co competition and fighting. So it's really meant to be this like delicious, fun experience for two to four people to share in basically about two to three hours. The two player game is about an hour. Sorry, that was a really tall elevator. No, that's it was like that's a skyscraper fine. at least. <laughs> that was perfectly fine. And it is a game that at some point we're looking to take a look at. Uh, I have a prototype copy sitting here. Just got some new rule sets and stuff from Don here recently to kind of go over. So hopefully here in the near future we will have, um, I believe it's going to be video. It's not going to be on the podcast, but we will do an initial impressions uh, video for it, hopefully here in the very near future as well. And I can say that we've kind of been looking forward to breaking it out and giving it a, giving it a run. It, it's definitely hit a nerve here at, at the Geek Compound. So myself and my uh, co-host of the regular podcast have been kind of looking forward to breaking it out at some point. So if you're, you know, talking about the kind of game process, it hit a couple of breakthroughs in the last, you know, last month. And one of the main one was you kind of get close to a game. You really at some point have to give it off to somebody and then 
recently we really we had the rules we'd gone over them and then um a new guy um eric johnson and don had took the rule book and basically said you know when people really love this game they have a good time but when somebody remotely tries to learn it they they get a little frustrated and so we really really went over the rules and those the new person being introduced to the game was just revolutionary and I think we have like one of the the best looking you know prototype I guess not prototype but you know Kickstarter level rule books and it's you know crystal clear now and it was really that point where at some point you just you don't know what works and doesn't work because it's just you and you got to give it to somebody else. Yeah, there's there's always I'm a huge advocate of the the blind play test, especially from the aspect of here it is now go ahead and play it. Yeah. And I'm just, mm-hmm. if you're in the room, then you're just there to take notes and, and you really don't answer any questions unless they, they're seriously stuck. And I've done this for a few people as well, where they're like, will you, will you please do a blind play test where you try to learn it and play it off of the rule book? And mm-hmm. it is a huge eye opener because there's so many different ways that things can be taken. And I know what I mean. exactly i i know exactly what i mean so why don't you know what i mean well okay i need to explain it a little bit different and i'm even finding that a little bit like i'm doing a collaboration right now and sometimes on both sides and and our primary mode of communication right now is through uh, a chat and so when we're conveying ideas back and forth you we get to see it almost early because it's like well here's what i was thinking um, I'm not quite understanding what you're talking about. Okay. Let me try it this way, you know? So even just in that, I'm seeing it early where it's like, yeah, I know in my head, I know exactly what I'm talking about. So now I just need to get this other individual to kind of <laughs> figure out well, what yeah, I'm talking about. I mean, you like talking about process and, and how things change. One of the, the eye openers for me, and I think Don had already kind of seen that, but I went to a couple of cons. I went to BGG con to help him sell his game. And so it's not until you, I think you sit down at a booth at a con and like, can I pitch this game to somebody in 30 seconds and then get him playing it and get him to enjoy it. And I went back to my game and uh like hopefully I had the the wisdom to be like, okay, this is really fun, but it's out. This is out, this is out, this is out. You know, is I got it down to the, the game that you could exp- and it, it's a little bit more meaty than Dark Horse, but not by too much. And we realized a couple of ways to to make it, you know, you could do that elevator pitch. You could do it to 30 seconds, get somebody interested and you get them to sit down and, and play a couple of rounds and, and get a feel for the game. And so it was really weird that it took to like going to a con and trying to sell a game to really realize what sold, what didn't sell. And, you know, your ideas that seem really cool, but end up being crazy fiddly and you just, you just toss them out. So I came back after that and there was a couple of things in the game that just weren't working. All of a sudden it was just like Zen clarity. <laughs> it was like out, 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 out. <laughs> this is the, the base game. This is what you could explain to somebody, you know, over a table at a con. So that was kind of fun. Well, and that's why I'm also a big advocate of the protospiel and unpub events because the type of feedback you get there is drastically different even than you'll get at like a, a normal convention where you're sitting down with, you know, people that are looking to play a game because protospiels and unpubs are all designers, other designers that are sitting down to help you hash out issues. And I just had that kind of same conversation with somebody that there was Somebody that I sat down with at a game at this last protospiel I went to that had a, an excellent game, but the delivery needed to be tightened up. And I told them that. It's like, you, you know, you've got a good game here, but it wasn't until I got pretty far into it that I realized how good your game was. And a lot of that had to do was I was still trying to puzzle through your presentation <laughs> and figure out what I was playing. 
So if you can tighten up your presentation, you're going to do yourself a, a lot of favors on the back end when people are actually playing your game. And you're not necessarily going to hear up front from somebody that even thinks that way at a normal convention if you showing off a game sometimes. Yeah, I think that's what's kind of fun about going to cons with Don is because he's, yeah, cons is extroverted and I'm kind of extroverted. And so, you know, we can just grab people and pull them in. And we're not always like that, but you have to be <laughs> at a con. So it, it teaches you like, you know, growing lessons as a person, but it also just teaches you, you know, when I, some of the games I'm working on now, I think are drastically different based on having to pitch a game at BGG and other cons. And it's like, okay. And so I've been going to some faster, faster games that really just, just to like run up and jump in your lap and, and get you excited and making decisions <laughs> instead of some of the older games were great games, but it was like you had to slog through to get to the the beauty. And now it's just like right up there and you're, you're having fun. And I think some people I've, you know, I've done some of the stuff that you're talking about and Don has too. And it seems like some people don't remember, like they're making a game to make interesting decisions and people having fun or making, you know, solving a puzzle. And they, they don't, they seem to forget you know, why we make games and why we play games. And it's like, you know, some kind of like difficult task to solve instead of something fun to partake in. And that's why I kind of forged the steel was like this game that it's a little bit longer, but it's, it's almost like this experience. And so you're charting history and the cards, like any CDG cards come out and they're shuffled randomly. So each time you play the first round, 1890, it's going to be different than the last time. And there's a couple of, there's industrial tracks and commercial tracks and mining. And so first time you play the game, you might have all sorts of industrial development and then somebody's like oh the game's broken there's too much industrial development well the second time you play it you kind of create this different narrative with everybody and uh, the way the cards interact and the way that people play like you're, you're creating this like shared experience kind of going back to that city planning observation that guy had that you know like after the game's done you have a really great session report <laughs> that's kind of always the way I wanted to design some of the games was like when somebody finishes like man that was that felt like I built something and I made something with other people and I would you know good enough to share online and good enough to talk about later. Like I don't, some of the games, you know, people design are quick and they're fast and they're efficient, but you know, they're really not that, that memorable. And so are you, even if it's not a bad game, are you, if it's not memorable, are you going to, are you going to like it? Are you going to buy it? Are you going to tell somebody else to buy it? So um, we're kind of erring on the other side a little bit longer, but definitely something that's kind of memorable and fun and kind of creating experiences with people. So, I mean, not quite BSG, you know, four hour experience, <laughs> but you know, as I think anybody plays a, a card driven game, that's kind of based off of history. Every time they finish it, kind of, even if you lose, the tension's been amazing and you just feel like you've had this really great experience. And so I've tried to cram that into a four-player setting, a three- or four-player setting, and kind of a, a reasonable, you could play, easily play it in a night. How involved have you been then for getting the Kickstarter prepped for uh, launch here? Don's kind of the master of that, so I've been really learning from Don about how to get that marketed. And Eric Johnson, some other people have been helping him get that done. And so... I've been involved in terms of um, maybe trying to find a different market for this board game because it is historically based and I'm kind of based in that. And so we're hoping that we get board game people interested as well as maybe some historic preservation people. Um, people are interested in just history and teachers. And so maybe that last group that you have a hard time getting to fund your Kickstarter, we could get through kind of dif different markets. And so I've been helping with that. You know, I know you guys are still kind of in the process of putting the Kickstarter together. And I know that from talking to Don, you guys are probably launching that sometime in September, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think about three or four weeks, depending on how everything goes, we'll have it together and some really great video that Don's friend Eric is working on. And you know, this one kind of has a 
an interesting historical tie to a place. I think, you know, we might shoot some, some of the video at the, there's a steelworks museum that actually interprets like industrial history where we're actually signing an agreement with the museum to use their photos for the, for the cards in the game. So they'll actually be, you know, real historical photos from, from this museum and we're going to give them credit in the game. So I think, you know, I have kind of, couple cooler, interesting things in our video than, than your, your standard kind of Kickstarter video. One of the questions I usually like to ask is, let's say somebody is listening to this and the Kickstarter is live and they decide to go check out the uh, Kickstarter for Forged and Steel. And let's say somebody goes, yeah, I think this might be for me. I'm just not 100% sure yet. Uh, what are a couple things that you would give somebody to go, you know what, Wade, you're absolutely right. I have to back Forged in Steel right now. You know, I think, A, there's probably nothing like it in your collection. I think a lot of us are getting to the point where we have every one of every type of game. And so there, I'm not familiar with a game that's, you know, as a car-driven game that's plays two to four people, you know, in between an hour and, you know, two and a half hours. The other reason is that it's just really fun and really tense. And so it might not be some for some people, but I think most people, it's just full of delicious decisions and that every play that you make affects the board and the city grows organically. So it, there's tons of city playing games, but there's very few where you actually feel like you're built, physically building a city and all the interaction that goes on with building a city. So it's the city planning game that, you know, should have been built, should have been designed and out in the market years ago. The closest thing I can think of, it's a little bit like big city, you know, and the other thing is that it's really versatile. And so we didn't design it at first for two players, but I started playing it with uh, my dad and my wife just for playtesting purposes. And we found out that it works just as fine and we kind of tweaked a couple of things. And so you can sit down and play a game and it's almost kind of like, you know, playing Jumbo or so just kind of a nice, you know, you play a game, you play with your spouse and, you know, it's, it's tense, but not too tense. And then you can ramp it up to three and four players. So it can be that kind of after Sunday afternoon coffee game with your spouse, or, you know, it could be that competitive meaty game with your friends or, you know, kind of be a, a, a media. It could just do, it fits a lot of different roles, I think, depending on who you are and, and what you want to get out of your game night. We're going to get cool little houses and buildings. And so you actually be able to get wrap your hands around lots of, of wooden buildings that you'll be putting down on the city map. There are uh, quite a few bits to it. It's it's going to be a bit player's paradise. Uh, there's not that. There actually isn't that many bits to it. But I mean, there, there are a lot of things going on, like you said, kind of building out the the houses and and another thing is that we were kind of torn whether we try to do plastic or something else or, or wooden bits and again from a demoing games you know Dark Horse has you know wooden bits that look like Settlers Catan and there's just something about that familiarity that people see where they'll sit down and play it and so we kind of struggle with what we want our buildings to look like and I think we're going to go with kind of simple kind of German you know Euro wood looking houses there's just something about it that grabs people's attention when you're doing demos the game is kind of a crossover between some kind of Euro trash and a and regular Euro style games. And so I think we've decided to go with those bits that, you know, make people feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Plus making plastic buildings, we found out costs more than, you know, the GDP of some small countries. Yeah. There's a, there's a weird threshold that happens. Like plastic is more expensive until you get to a certain amount. And if you, you hit that amount, then, then it flips over. Yeah. And I think that kind of takes a lot of people by surprise until they start researching it. Like I said, we are in the process of taking a look at Forged in Steel and hopefully we'll have an initial impressions video out here in the near future. And this should be coming to Kickstarter sometime in September. Don and I talk off and on. So I am going to be aware. We'll probably be sharing that information in a future podcast as well. Uh, when the, uh, launch date is 
solidified. And again, Forged in Steel is a card-driven game for city building. So if this is something that appeals to you, definitely keep a watch out. Hopefully, I haven't talked to Don in a little bit, but hopefully he's going to start sharing preview links here soon so we can share that out as well. Wade, thank you for hanging out with me this evening, sir. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Is there uh, anything that you would like to uh, make sure we have touched on before we take off here for the evening? You know, I just hope that, you know, people check it out. It's different than I think anything that I've I've seen out there. And especially for those people who just like to kind of immerse themselves in history while they're playing a game, you know, and it's fun. Like I was mentioned earlier, I really try to design games that you really have a good time playing, whether you're angry and you're throwing stuff at somebody <laughs> or you're celebrating the games is tense and, and fun. So I hope I encourage everybody just to check it out as soon as it gets on Kickstarter. And are there any uh, like social media links or anything that you would like to share with anybody that might be uh, wanting to know more? Not at this time. but we'll have them soon. Sounds good. All right. So there you go, everybody. That was Wade with Forged in Steel, which is coming to Kickstarter very soon here. Uh, Another interview in the books, and we will be uh, having quite a few more coming up. Uh, Like I said, I've got a lot of people uh, lined up for interviews, and we have started the written interviews on the site itself. Uh, We've kind of booked up our audio interviews and people are still looking for ways to have conversations with us and get the word out. So we've opened up written interviews over on allusgeeks.com. You can check those out. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you for checking out a United Geeks Network family member. If you enjoyed it and are looking for other online media with a geek culture slant, head over to unitedgeeksnetwork.com where you will find... Broken Prism Reviews, a YouTube channel bringing you game reviews in three parts. Unboxing, express gameplay, and a quick rundown of what makes the game stand out. The United Geeks Network. You can broadcast your geekiness at unitedgeeksnetwork.com.